Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman. And if this is your first time here, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're talking about art technology and the intersection between them. But mostly, we want to talk about why you should care about this stuff. I've been on both sides of this coin as a startup founder, an engineer, a creative, and I'm just fascinated by the world where art and technology overlap. So I'll be talking to artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, anybody who has any perspective on this world I want to talk to. So this week on the podcast, as most of you listeners know, uh, it's actually been a little while since we've had a working artist on the program. We've done a lot of administrative people and a lot of research people. So I'm really excited that our next guest uh, actually is a live working artist that you guys can all relate to. Um, we found Gabe through, I think, some TED Talks, which is really cool. Um, and so uh, I'll let him kind of explain his own artwork as we go. I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but please welcome uh, Gabe to the program. How are you doing, Gabe? I'm good. I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a live working artist. There, there you go, man. There's, there, there's so few of you left, you know? <laughs> I know. <laughs> soon, soon we'll all be uh you know robot working artists but for now i'm still alive. exactly man especially people working in the art and technology world right yeah definitely um so speaking of that world man so can you give our listeners a little bit of an idea of sort of your medium and and how you got into it yeah i work uh somewhere between uh video art sculpture and installation artwork. Um, so I, you know, I used to call it video sculpture. Um, now I just call myself an artist. <laughs> um, because you know, when I started doing this stuff um, in 2005, um, there weren't a whole lot of people working in video mapping yet. Um, and so I sort of discovered it one night. <laughs> well, I didn't discover video mapping, but I discovered the, the possibilities of video mapping one night when I was um, in grad school, just uh, aiming a projector at some uh, empty glass jars that I had on my desk. And for some reason, this concept kind of clicked into place. Um, but, you know, over the years, I've sort of discovered a lot of different possibilities for combining art and technology. And I don't really see te the technology as more than a tool, really, to create artwork. So to me, it's just like a new version of a paintbrush uh, or, you know, a new version of clay. It's just a tool that now artists are using to create compelling works uh, for galleries or museums. So where did your original, because you originally went to school for cinema, right? Yeah, I went to USC, uh, the production film program in LA, uh, and made a lot of films there that were somewhat strange. Um, basically, a lot of nonlinear films um, that <laughs> didn't fit too well with a lot of the other films that were being made. Like there were a lot of kind of Hollywood-esque films. Um, and so I would make things that were sort of shattering the traditional uh, narr narrative devices in film um, and felt a little bit like an outcast there. But uh, I think that led to where I am now. <laughs> so what was your original motivation to get involved in cinema and why the twist from sort of traditional, you know, Star Wars storytelling to sort of the fine art world of cinema? Um, I think I've always been really interested in storytelling. Um, and when I was a kid, I had a video camera, I had a VHS camera. That was my dad's. Uh, and I would shoot these weird movies with my sister. Uh, I made an alien movie where I covered her in ketchup once and she had some allergic reaction and <laughs> broke out in hives. It was really bad. Um, <laughs> but I would make all these sort of bizarre movies. Uh, you know, there's a famous one now because it kind of relates to my later work where I um, demonstrated ancient Egyptian mummification techniques on my sister who was like five years old at the time. But I'm super serious doing these videos. 
so that one you can find <laughs> online. Um, and it's just like this bizarre, I guess I was a kind of a bizarre kid, but I was always really interested in time-based media um, and storytelling over time. Um, and, you know, I guess that kind of leads into the work that I do now. It's sort of a weird ex- exaggeration of stuff that I've been doing since I was like 10, weirdly enough. <laughs> so, so it's really cool. I mean, we found you through one of your TED Talks where you were talking about your project, Animalia Cordata. And uh, I mean, I have plenty of questions about it, but can you give the listeners an idea of what this project is? Yeah, so this is a video sculpture that I made where I filmed a bunch of my friends. I just basically captured them being themselves um, and then project them into glass jars, sort of like scientific specimens. And when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time at the Natural History Museum in L.A., um, with my mom who used to take me there all the time. And I was just a really big fan of natural history. And I love the dioramas there, especially of the animals behind the glass. And I think that was like a direct inspiration for this project where, you know, now I have this collection of my friends captured forever. It's sort of memorialized through these physical, uh, jars that, that contain them. <laughs> but the, the image of them is a digital projection. So, you know, video has always been a really good way to capture memories. And I think that's what I did a lot when, as a kid too, was capturing memories of people on video. But now I've sort of preserved my friends as these specimens. Um, and I made this piece in 2000, originally in 2008. Um, and at that time, people were, you know, pretty interested in social media. It wasn't like where we are right now, but people were really starting to discover Facebook. And, um, you know, even I think it was around the time when Instagram was starting out or maybe it started a little later. But I thought that was really interesting, this idea of capturing your friends and sort of collecting your friends online. <laughs> Um, which is exactly what we do with social media now. It's like on Facebook, we have a collection of our friends. So in a way, this, this sculpture was sort of a, a physical version of that. Um, and the sculpture is an interactive piece. So when you approach it, there's a sensor and it allows the characters to see you and react to you in different ways. So it's sort of like a living sculpture that changes over time. I, and yeah, so I mean, for listeners, it, it's, I mean, you kind of have to see it to understand it. But it really, when you're looking at it, kind of gives the effect. I mean, it's almost like a hologram in these glass jars, right? I mean, you're actually seeing video of your friends trapped in these jars. Yeah, it looks very similar to a hologram. Uh, they, they appear to be three-dimensional, but they're actually just video projections. And that's because of the glass, the way the, the image reflects through the glass itself. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, people see it and they kind of freak out because it's, you know, I did... I've done a bunch of different versions of this piece. One version was like a t- an entire room where there was 40 jars. And that piece was called Garden. And so the idea was sort of like you walked into this garden of humanity. <laughs> so it's like you're now, are you the bug in the in the jar or are you actually the bug outside of the jar looking at all these bugs? You know, it's like a weird uh, metaphor there for life. <laughs> yeah, I like it, man. And I love that. I love that you just use all your personal friends for this. How, how is their reaction to these projects? <laughs> um, for the most part, I think it's been good. It's interesting because that project was done so long ago now that you know, a lot of those friends don't even live in New York anymore. I don't, some of them I'm not in contact with anymore, not out of anything bad, just they've gone on with their lives. But I have this very intimate video of them from, you know, 10 years ago now. Yeah. And so there's something interesting about building this collection of, of media and this collection of memories. Um, I have all these hard drives now that are just full of memories in the form of visual media. Um, and that's something that really fascinates me. Why, why was it important for you to have this sort of interaction piece to this where as you approach it, they actually change the video that's playing. I think because a lot of the time when we see artwork um, in museums, we spend a short amount of time with it. We spend maybe like, you know, now they're saying it's about two or three seconds with each artwork before we move on. 
Hmm. Um, our, our, you know, our attention spans are actually getting small, shorter and shorter. Um, I read somewhere that our attention spans are actually shorter than a goldfish now, uh, which is <laughs> disturbing. Um, but with this piece, you, you're kind of encouraged to spend more time because there's interaction. Um, so you may not see the entire piece. You may only see a small part of it, but the interaction allows you to, to, to maybe encourage you to question things about the artwork in a different way. Um, so I like that if you approach it, maybe you realize, oh, that person over there suddenly noticed me. How long does this video actually last? <laughs> Is it, are these people really alive? It kind of brings more life to the sculpture. And I like the idea of sculptures that take place over time. Like maybe you could have a sculpture that takes place over 10,000 years and you don't see the entire thing unless you somehow uh, live in, into the future. <laughs> it, it's such it's such a cool project, man. And one of the things that that really caught my eye about it is that um, you really came out of a, a, a fairly formal creative education. I mean, even even the cinema stuff isn't isn't even like fine art, fine art. So um, but but the technical sort of prowess that was required to get this project done was fairly substantial. And I think that like, it, you know, I'm I'm half nerd and half creative. And so I love where artists use technology in their pieces. But so many artists, I think, get really intimidated by using any of these electronic components or little sensors and stuff like that. How did you push through that? How did you kind of build those skills? Uh, I think when I was a kid, um, I had the luxury of having a Mac classic computer in my house. And I used to make like hypercard games and used to do draw on the Mac. And that became a tool for me to create artwork from a very young age. Hmm. Um, and so I wasn't intimidated by technology. Like still, if you can put me in front of like a, a new software, I can learn it pretty fast because of that, I think. Um, and so to me, it's just like learning any other painting technique. <laughs> um, as long as you can study it and spend enough time with it, I think you're going to learn it. You know, I meet a lot of artists that are that hire other people to do the technical work. They're like, oh, I'm the artist and these are the technicians. And I think that's totally uh, an old way of thinking about art. I think that, you know, most of the digital artists that I know today are making all the work themselves because there's so many tutorials online. There's so many ways to learn things um, that it's not as prohibitive as it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Hmm. I mean, there's like eight-year-old kids online teaching you how to make VR now, <laughs> which is, you know, it's intimidating to me now. It's damn <laughs> but, uh, eight-year-olds, man. But like, I should learn it then. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have an excuse to just pay someone to do it for me. I think that, you know, I do work with other people and I learn from other people too, but I want to, I want to keep learning and keep growing as an artist. And part of that is learning tools as well. Yeah. So, so this, this idea of sort of, uh, humanity being captured and preserved and uh <laughs> it sometimes even bought and sold is really pervasive in your work um the the next project that like really turned my head was the dna vending machine man can you explain a little bit of that for the listeners yeah so it, it's it's uh somewhat self-explanatory in that it's a, a vending machine that sells human dna um but the the reason that i made it is different i mean i so I've been doing a lot of video sculpture work with projections. I projected people into blenders, into radios, all sorts of stuff like this. And, um, you know, I started to think more about why I was doing all of this. And uh, it really became clear that I wanted to sort of preserve things for the ages in some way and preserve memories. And at first I thought about making a vending machine that sells memories. So I thought of making sort of like a vending machine that sells 
you know, USB drives or something like that with people's memories on them. And that seemed interesting, but it also seemed kind of safe to me in a way. And so I went to this talk at this place called Gen Space in Brooklyn. Um, and this brilliant guy named Oliver Medvedic, who is also a TED fellow, um, he's one of the founders of Gen Space. And it's sort of a biohacking community um, resource. Uh, and he was doing this really simple lecture about how to get strawberry DNA, how to precipitate strawberry DNA. And of course, in my mind, the first thing I thought was, could you do that with people too? Like, could you precipitate human DNA and would it look as beautiful as strawberry DNA looks? So then I started having these parties at my house where I just bought a bunch of equipment on Amazon and started extracting people's DNA. I'd be like, hey, but let's have some beers. But before you have a beer, can I get your DNA really fast? Um, and <laughs> I told them what I was doing. You know, the piece is about privacy. It's about um, bioethical rights. Like who owns your DNA? Can the government come and take your DNA from you? Um, and so I created these sort of little collectible packages based on Apple products. So they look very much like the original iPhone or something like that. They're like very glossy white cases. And each one comes with a photograph of the person whose DNA it is, along with a little vial of their actual DNA that's been precipitated. Uh, and these are sold on a vending machine. And, um, you know, I was also kind of really into those um, uh, blind box toys that were, I mean, they're still a big deal now, but you, you open this toy and you don't know what you're going to get in a box. Right. So that was, I kind of built that into it too, where you'd buy a sample of the DNA, but you wouldn't know who you're going to get beforehand. <laughs> and the response was super strange. I mean, I got tons of emails from people being like creeped out uh, to people who wanted to buy the entire vending machine, not as an art project, but like as samples. I got a really weird email from a pharmaceutical company that was like, we want to keep buying samples from you. And I'm like, I'm not a bio lab. Like, <laughs> um, or, and, you know, I got people on uh, that were like, oh, I want only, you know, white women from 25 to 30. And I was like, whoa, this is not, I mean, it's interesting in a way that exposed this sort of level of creepiness. That's something that I wanted to touch on in creating the work, but I never anticipated that. And apparently there's a school in Florida um, that I never actually saw the final result, but they actually created their own DNA vetting machines huh. uh, as part of a science class and they installed it in their hallway. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty great. It's so, it's weird, man, because like, practically speaking, right, the everyday person walking down the street is probably going to be able to do much more to you with your social security number or your credit card number than a vial of your DNA. Um, and yet, like, it's well, such... for now. Yeah, <laughs> right, 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 right. But it's just for such now. A I mean, but in the personal... future, you know, you never know. Yeah, for, you never know in the future, like, Maybe we're going to be using DNA as currency one day. That's that's something I wanted to play into too. It's like mm. you know the idea of uh, owning someone someone's likeness or being able to manipulate their traits. That might become the ultimate luxury in the end. So what I have to ask what was what was the cost in the vending machine? How much would it cost me to get someone's DNA? It was a hundred dollars per sample. So they were sold as like art collectible pieces. Yeah. You know they're all numbered and, and signed in addition. Um, but you know like. Like, like for me, any great installation artwork kind of grabs, catches you off guard. And you're like, oh, that's a, it looks like a vending machine. And you're like, wait, what? Are, those aren't chips in that vending machine. They're like something else. And you get closer and it's like this stuff floating in liquid, <laughs> you know? And that catches you off guard, hopefully in the same way that like, uh, you know, Duchamp was trying to catch you off guard with a urinal in a gallery. You know, that's, that's kind of <laughs> right. like my hero in a way as an artist to try and create ready-made objects that kind of flip, flip the, the script on in the narrative on that artwork and and you used your friends again as the sources of this dna right yeah yeah it was all my friends and 
you know, I had them sign a waiver, um, <laughs> which I, you know, have a friend who's a lawyer and he kind of looked over it. <laughs> um, basically says, you know, these are going to be sold as limited editions. Um, we can't guarantee what's going to ha- happen with these samples after they go out. Um, and are you okay with that? It's, a, it's primarily an art project. I'm not selling it to like big corporations, but there's nothing stopping them from going to the vending machine and buying them. So, so were any of the donors super creeped out about what's going to happen or did you have a pretty willing participant base? I mean, they knew beforehand. It wasn't like I sprung it on them. <laughs> so the, Surprise, you know, the DNA. DNA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right? I, I don't know, man. You're, you're, you're billing it as a party. So I'm assuming people just show up and then you're collecting samples from like beer bottles and stuff like that. Well, no, the original parties were just to test it out and see how it would work. Like to, you know, these DNA vending machine parties I had were really like, Hey, you're coming over to my house. Let's see if this technology will work. Um, and then I actually had more of a formal session in at a, a studio space where I, you know, had two days of collection <laughs> where yeah. people come in, they would swish, <laughs> you know, saliva around their mouths and spit it out and then I would precipitate it afterwards. So. Um, so it wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't just like, Hey, come on over to my, that would be super weird and unethical. <laughs> like I'm just collecting your DNA and then selling it as an artwork. All, all of the um, name yeah, of art, man. Yeah. That, that's the thing is like, sometimes art is a little creepy and I'm not, I'm not yeah. trying to be creepy, but I'm trying to ask questions with my work. So hopefully it provokes some questions from looking at that kind of piece. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the artwork itself doesn't feel so creepy. What's what makes it creepy is what people want to do or or the sort of vagueness about why someone would be interested in a particular dna or something like that right yeah exactly i mean it's pretty benign in just the fact that you can get people's dna from you know hair walking on the street cigarette butts anything like that but the fact that it's being presented as an art object is what makes it different Hmm. like the fact that it's like a limited edition collectible you know we're all in a way like limited editions walking around the street but this is like taking that and bring it to a different level so then um i mean it seems like this this idea of sort of packaged identity really just continues in your work i mean the the most recent thing that that i'm aware of i think your most recent major work um descent is sort of a augmented reality uh avatar of your friends can you talk a little bit about that work sure yeah i just made an uh, augmented reality sculpture called descent um and it's 12 uh it's a room full of beds basically 12 miniature beds that are about you know to give you an idea like 12 inches long um and they're they look like little replicate rep you know uh they look like little beds basically little bed sculptures but they're uh, actually fabricated they're 3d printed beds um, and when you look at them through an app that I developed, you see avatars leading their lives out on these beds. So they're the, all the avatars of my friends. Um, and you see them not only living their lives in the beds, but you see their dreams as well. So I interviewed all these people about their dreams and then recreated them as 3D models. And the idea is that these people will live forever on these sculptures. So it's a living sculpture. Uh, it changes over time. And I just like the idea that now there, it looks like a physical object, but there's, there's, stories encoded into that physical object and so you know the beds look like they're plush but they're actually 3d printed which also kind of plays on this idea of the fabricated reality versus the actual reality and the whole piece is about how we represent ourselves digitally versus how we are physically you know is that persona that you have on social media on on facebook or uh instagram your actual self is that who you are or is that just someone you're presenting for people to look at or like a fabricated reality um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an evolution of my work in the sense that it's an augmented reality sculpture, but it's not that different actually from Anamalia Cordata, which was 
just video mapping uh, a very similar uh, concept. Why are these themes so interesting to you? Uh, I think I'm sort of obsessed with collecting memory. I think I've always been interested in that and being able to replay memories. I did this other piece um, that we haven't really touched on called the Hereafter Institute, which is all about, um, it's, it's a little bit of a darker piece, but it's about digital memorialization. And what happens to people who die when we have, they have a large amount of data on the internet. So I did like a whole performance at the LA County Museum of Art, um, called the Hereafter Institute, where you could come and get a consultation appointment and learn about these artworks that I made to help preserve people after they die. And with that, I actually worked with people who had passed away, um, families of people who had passed away to create new digital memorials. So in one, you could visit people who had died in virtual reality and created these three different memorials for three different people. And you could spend time with them after they had died. Um, and in another one, it was taking uh, someone's Facebook profile who had passed away and converting it into audio tones, taking that text and converting it to audio tones, which could then be read by a, a custom vinyl record. So you could sort of have this permanent record of someone's profile online, you know, because the problem is like all these profiles of people who have died on Facebook are still owned by Facebook. And technically one day they could all just disappear. So I think there's something about permanence and memory that we're all going to sort of come up against in the next couple, you know, in the next decade or maybe 50 years. Um, you know, we, we're collecting all this data right now, but where is it going to end up? Like where it, I make digital art and I'm concerned about what's going to happen to all my digital work. <laughs> How are we going to preserve these memories? You know, it's kind of a I'm creating sort of a paradox in itself, but I find that tension interesting. Um and I think we'll develop we'll develop ways to preserve and collect digital work in the same way. You know, people are already doing that. But, you know, in the same way that we collect photography or video or paintings, you know, or, or sculptures, we'll have places that conserve uh, uh, and, you know, fix up artwork that's digital. Um, but, yeah, I think I think that's that's something that I, I think we're all going to be thinking about. I think it's kind of already on our minds. Like, where do all our photos go after we die? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not to not to make this a bleak conversation, but it is something that I'm fascinated by. Hey, everybody, I'd like to pause the episode here for just one second. First and foremost, to give you guys our thanks. We're so appreciative that you guys like what we do and are listening. Uh, we really couldn't do it without you. We love making this podcast, but obviously, you have to be there for us to make it. If you're interested in helping us out a little bit more, if you want to go the extra mile, we would appreciate it so much. And there's two ways that you can help. The first, leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. This seems like a little thing. I know everybody's always asking you to do it, but it helps us so much. And more than anything else, it helps people like you find us. So if you find us interesting, other people hopefully do too. The second thing that you can do is let us know what you find interesting. Tell us what you want to hear. Please just reach out to us. Say anything to us. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at State of the Art. All right. Thanks so much. And back to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's a very real world uh, issue too. I mean, working in the tech industry, this has been this has been sort of a buzzy topic now for probably you know five to ten years. Really, Facebook kicked it off, but even things as simple as um, email passwords and stuff like that. You know, I mean, you have a lot of a lot of records that are really important when you die <laughs> that that are all in email attachments and things like that. And so for just file keeping, um, it's a really, it's a really important topic. How do you gain access to that stuff? Is that, does that become property of, um, 
uh, of the family or, you know, does it require sort of legal action to get a hold of that information? It is a very interesting topic. So it's it's one that I, I'm personally fascinated by. And I think your your artwork really encompasses some of the interesting tension there. Yeah, I think like now more than ever, we're in a way closer to death than we've ever been before. I mean, I think because there's so many, so it's so public on Facebook when someone passes away. And I think we used to be that close to death before the industrial revolution came, came about. And now, you know, now we have funeral homes that take care of our, our, our deceased. But because now it's become public again on social media, I think we're starting to confront it in a different way. And I think even when you're talking about passwords, we're really talking about like trust and, um, now that I think about it, it seems like a lot of my work is about trust, <laughs> whether that is the DNA vending machine um, or the fact that, you know, these people trust me to to maintain their memories in some way, um, whether that's projecting them in bottles or projecting them onto beds or, um, you know, or capturing them for a, putting them in a, in a public setting like a public artwork. Um, there's always a trust between an artist and a subject that I, I think is really interesting to explore and also to value. Um, and, you know, when you introduce digital, it changes the level of that trust. We we put a lot of trust in these social me- social networks for a long time, and I think our relationship to them now is changing. Yeah, I think it's interesting actually that like probably most people would be uh, <laughs> would have sort of a higher level of questioning and curiosity about an artist using their identity than just giving it up freely on social networks. I mean. People, I think, don't always realize just how much information they're giving up about themselves just by interacting and telling people what they like and stuff like that. So it's, right. it's interesting that they would even pause whenever you ask for, you know, just a little piece of that, huh? Yeah, no, definitely. I and mean, I think it's something that's worth exploring more in artwork, too. I think that especially with tech art, we often get sort of enamored by whatever the look of that day is like, right. oh, now we're making vector graphics or now we're making flashy 3D stuff. but. To me, it's more about the concept. Like I find the questions that arrive with technology to be way more impactful in artwork than necessarily just the visuals or aesthetics. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I while I do use technology as a tool, a lot of my artwork is also about questioning technology and its role in our lives too. Yeah. So where you, you touched on this earlier, um, but I'd like to explore it a little bit. Where where do you see this work living? Like, is this um, gallery? sort of artwork is this institutional artwork is this um you know is this something that you'd like people to play with and be hands-on with or is this just meant to be looked at like what how do you see um your artwork in sort of the grander world of art i mean i'm i show my work in everywhere from galleries to like warehouses to you know i've worked with the mta so i've done like subway terminals before Hmm. um to me the important thing is that people engage with the artwork whether that means interacting with it physically or taking a photo of it or just something that kind of gets into your head and you think about later on so you know i've shown work all over the place (laughs) i'm trying to think of like you know bars uh alleys (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i've definitely like got you know taken a projector and put it in an alley in dumbo in the past and projected a bunch of clocks into an old garbage area you know there's i've done a lot of different things which i think you know a lot of artists do um but yeah i i don't i'm not super pristine about my work in yeah. some ways. I mean, I'm very, I'm very concerned with the the message and the technical um, 
the I'm really I'm concerned with the aesthetics and how someone interacts with it. But I I am not so pristine that like it has to be placed at 60 to 60 inches off the ground. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I like there should be a level of like messiness in there, too. Yeah, um, that I, I I'm really fascinated by a little bit more of a guerrilla artist. huh? Yeah, I think so. You know, like uh, I just did a fun show with a group of artists. Um, There's this curator uh, who who had this idea to take over a room in the MoMA. And we just we all made um, different augmented reality works for the Jackson Pollock room. So we didn't tell them we were doing this. And we just went in there, made our own app. And then we had an opening without the moment knowing. And you could go and look at a Jackson Pollock and then see our individual artworks overlaid on top of the Jackson Pollocks. <laughs> um, and that was really fun in like a gorilla way. And, you know, people were just like, why are there so many people interested in Jackson Pollock today? <laughs> but, uh, you know, so that kind of stuff, I think, keeps keeps the work fresh and um you know it's also why i like teaching because it just it, it keeps me a little bit scrappy you know which i think is is important as an artist to be versatile and to, to keep um updating your work and questioning your work what about um tell me a little bit about bunker because i know uh th- that's a project that you're sort of working on to as sort of a pop-up gallery what are you trying to achieve there yeah i, I founded a pop-up gallery called bunker um in 2015 um, it was sort of a response to the fact that a lot of the, t- the tech artwork was not being featured at big art fairs. Um, and so during the armory, I started my own kind of bunker to hide the artwork. <laughs> um, and people, you know, I was showing a bunch of people that made art with technology. Um, and that evolved in the past couple of years. We, you know, I had a show of bunker at Sotheby's, um, the art auction house last summer, which is really exciting. It was kind of the first um, foray, like a pop-up gallery that showed VR and AR work in Sotheby's, um, which was which was really cool because people were coming in there expecting to sort of see a Mark Rothko or, right. uh, you know, and then they ended up seeing like a Jeremy Bailey work or a Carla Gannis piece or Sarah Rothberg. And it's just like people they hadn't maybe had heard of, yeah. but people were super into it. And I think that's what you should do with art. You should challenge people, you know, especially in an auction house setting. You got to like see some new things. Yeah. <laughs> um, and put on that VR headset and touch a cactus or something, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. It's really cool, man. That's a, it's an awesome juxtaposition to be like, you know, the old school Sotheby's auction house, uh, you know, like you said, you're expecting a Rothko and to step into that and get exposure into some interesting news, sort of digital artwork is, I mean, I have to assume it was a surprise for a lot of people. Yeah, it was definitely a surprise for a lot of people going through there. And, you know, people were, super i mean we we sold work which is great you know yeah <laughs> um in a show like that that's really challenging people to think differently about artwork yeah. um you know and that that being said there was like uh there were curators who refused to come to that show because they don't like they don't understand tech artwork as, as they called it and i'm like well you really don't you don't understand artwork then is what you're saying <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's not tech artwork in the end this is just like the future of, of art is going to have technology involved with it yeah. you know i don't care if you're like a painter or uh, someone who does 3D printing, you're going to use some technology eventually. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's there's still some skepticism, I think, definitely. And that part of that's because it's hard to collect this kind of work. Um, but that's going to change to really soon. I mean, I think it, people are already collecting this work, but I think as more and more um, possibilities emerged in terms of editioning and buying work and uh, archiving the work, I think collectors are going to move towards buying digital work. Yeah. Yeah, it- I think it's interesting. I mean, it's just kind of part of the art world that you have to, you you got to take it. I mean, it's just is what it is that um, the issue of ownership and collection is, is a really big deal <laughs> if you're trying to be taken seriously, right? 
It is, but you know, you know, I've been hearing more and more about like possibilities with blockchain technology to basically determine who owns a digital work. You yeah. know, like you could say, okay, there are ten people that are own this digital work, and they can transfer it amongst themselves, uh, but it'll always be recorded in this ledger. And that seems like a really good way to sort of get around the idea of collecting digital work and archiving digital pieces. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think you... there's a siren over here. I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> <laughs> uh just a tiny bit, but it went away, so I think we're all right. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, hold on. Yeah, hold on. Maybe you want to wait till it, it's <laughs> passing. I'm just, I'm like in my office, and uh, yeah, it's probably like right outside. It sounds kind of nice. It actually sounds more like an ice cream machine. Yeah, an ice cream <laughs> truck. <laughs> it's the scariest ice cream truck. It's a heart attack ice cream truck. All right, yeah, it's fine now. Um, yeah. So, uh. So where were we? So um, we were talking about blockchain technology ownership. Hmm. Yeah, basically, you know, if you could record who owns a video art piece or, you know, even editions of that video art piece, and then I could transfer, you know, my ownership ID or my code for that artwork to you, there's, it would be a good way to collect and, and manage digital artwork, I think. Yeah. So you could basically say, like, there are five editions of this interactive installation, maybe if it's screen-based only. And then I know that if it's recorded in this ledger that everybody trusts, there's no reason for me not to trust that the digital artwork could be worth as much money as a painting at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it earlier that that technology for you is just sort of it's it's not so different than picking another paintbrush. Right. So um, it's there to solve problems. It's a tool. It's not some foreign beast. It's it's more uh, it's more um synonymous with artwork than it is uh antonymous <laughs> right? yeah. antonymous yeah definitely yeah yeah uh, no i mean it's just it's just like you know when people found can when people created cameras and suddenly we have photography you know what i mean there's no yeah. the, I, I would say that very few people argue now that photography is not an art, art form um <laughs> right, right, um, right and so i think we're going to see the same thing with like interactive art with small sensors with all this sort of stuff these are all just tools that artists are using now to express themselves so so where are you going what's the what's the next uh few years look like for you and your artwork uh, i'm going all over the place i think um i'm going to keep curating shows with bunker but i'm also working on a lot of new sculptures of ar to me ar is just like a really interesting technology Primarily because you can um, expose stories that aren't really there. Like the idea of, of a hidden layer in our world um, is really appealing to me. Um, and co combining that with sculpture, I think, could be really fascinating, especially with public artwork. Um, the idea of like revealing uh, a digital layer to a giant public sculpture, I think, is, is and, and maybe making that interactive in the sense that people could leave their own comments or thoughts digitally on that work. So that, that kind of becomes part of the work. Um, so I think there's a lot of possible possibilities for interaction. I'm also continuing to work with the Hereafter Institute. So, you know, I'm hopefully going to open it up again in New York um, sometime in the next year or so. Uh, and, you know, hopefully make it not necessarily a business, but um, it's going to still be uh, an installation artwork, but maybe seem a little bit more like a business than it was before. I'm, in the sense that, like, maybe I'll rent a storefront and open up the Hereafter Institute in a storefront. Um and that's something that I think is really interesting because I can keep expanding on that work because it's it is a topic that's you know, never going to go away. I don't think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm interested in making more sculptures and and uh, digital memorial pieces as well. Awesome. Well, Gabe, how can how can listeners follow along? Where can they find you? 
Uh, I'm just at Gabe BC. So G A B E B is in boy, C is in cow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on everything. So I'm on, you know, Twitter and Instagram and, um, you know, my website is gabebc.com. Uh, so yeah, if send me an email or something, I'm curious to hear what you think about the work or if you want to be in uh, the next DNA vending machine <laughs> or if you want to be in an AR piece, let me know. I'd love to work with new people. So you, you got to be careful asking the internet for DNA submissions. Man. <laughs> Don't send them to my house, but um, we could talk about doing like another uh, meetup at some point. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, before I let you go, uh, we always have the rapid fire section of the interview. Do you have time for just a few last questions? Yeah, sure. Sounds good. All right. Well, the idea is just fire off the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, hopefully, it's not too painful or difficult for you. Uh, okay. Just for a good time. So what was the last movie that you saw? Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which was <laughs> terrible. Oh, my God. Talk was about it? like creating things with DNA. I mean, I love the original Jurassic Park, but this was just, oh, it didn't make any I don't know. I didn't. I was not a fan of that. <laughs> Man, it's a shame uh, to see the the pristine reputation of the Jurassic Park series getting well, run off the rails. Like Fallen Kingdom, it feels like yeah, it's a Fallen series now. So <laughs> the last two have been so disappointing to me. But the first one, I remember seeing in the theater and being like, "Oh my god, this is so it's so thrilling," you oh, know. Man. And now I'm just like, "Oh, world banging." <laughs> I think that was the first R-rated movie I ever saw, by the way. But right. anyways, this is about you, not me. So, uh, so second rapid fire question. What is your best guilty pleasure song? Oh, um, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, God, I'm sure like my friends would know this better than I would because I love to torture my friends with music. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me. Oh God, God, I should think about that really fast. Um, let's see. I don't know. What's guilty pleasure song? <laughs> Most embarrassing. Uh, Most top, embarrassing. Top answers come from like Miley Cyrus. Or oh, Madonna. I mean, I do love Miley Cyrus, um, <laughs> but I don't think that's embarrassing enough. Probably. <laughs> like I, I get way more embarrassing than that. You know, uh, maybe like some Paul Abdul, like, uh, <laughs> yeah, <man. laughs> I don't know. Some really like eighties stuff, uh, you know, I very know. nice. Look, Paula Abdul's an angel. She always has been. I'm, I'm sure it'll pop into my mind as we keep going here. <laughs> and then I won't tell you. It's too embarrassing. All right. What is your go-to comfort food? Uh, Panda Express. Yes. Orange <laughs> chicken. Like up in, chicken. That's like my also my guilty pleasure. Yeah, I grew up in Southern California. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like the best hangover food in the world is Panda Express. Very nice. Beautiful. And last but not least, what is your favorite childhood cartoon? Ren and Stimpy, uh, oh, by far. Yeah. Uh, I, when I was a kid, I, I got to meet like, uh, Bob Camp, who drew Ren and Stimpy. It was really? one of my, yeah, one of my most amazing, uh, memories. <laughs> it was, it was weird. Yeah, it was weird because my mom, somehow my mom, like, met somebody who worked there and she had to pretend to be his wife. So as we could go, it was very weird. <laughs> We got like a tour of the of the Spumco office, but it was always like this guy to pretend to be my dad, and it was it was very weird. Yeah, uh, but I, it resulted in I have a signed Ren and Stimpy like um, uh, cell in my childhood room, which is pretty great. It kind of makes sense that like your Ren and Stimpy real life experience would be as bizarre as the show is. It's just yeah. the weirdest, most yeah. awesome show of all time. 
I think, oh, I think my, um, one of my guilty pleasure songs has got to be like John Bon Jovi's uh, soundtrack to Young Guns 2. If <laughs> 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 you've ever heard that. I mean, that is like really, is like this really bad Blaze of Glory song. It's really... Uh... <laughs> Shot down in a blaze of glory. That's yeah, a great song. Yeah, that song. Do you remember that song? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, man. of course I do. Oh, oh, what like a good song. Somewhere. I think he rides on an iron horse in that song. Yeah. If I'm not <laughs> mistaken. Not good. Not good now. I listen to it again now and I'm just like, oh God. I don't know why I like this so much. Uh, on a steel yeah. on a steel horse I ride. Yeah. That's that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> well then, sir, your guiltiest pleasure is amazing. All right. Fair enough. Not the coolest song, but you know, I'm <laughs> trying to answer honestly here. So. I love it, man. I love it. Great. Well, thanks so much, Gabe. Uh, this has been a real treat to talk to you. Your work is is really impressive. People should really check it out. It's it's something that you're not going to see anywhere else. And so, uh, it was it was awesome. It's I, I love talking to people that have a real original eye for their artwork and um, so concept driven. It's really really fascinating work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been good to talk to you. Absolutely, man. Have a great day. You too. Bye. As always, thank you so much for tuning in this week, listeners. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed the conversation with Gabe. It's such a good time always to talk to working artists, especially those who are who are really being successful and finding an outlet for their artwork. So thank you so much to Gabe for his time. If you want to learn a little bit more about Gabe, and there's plenty, plenty to learn about Gabe. He has a lot of stuff that we didn't get time to cover. Um, please check out his website, GabeBC.com. That's G-A-B-E-B-C.com. Um, and he's on Instagram and Twitter, but that's probably the best place to find him. So check that out. Thanks so much to Gabe. Thank you for listening. And please, if if you like what we're doing here at State of the Art, if you like this podcast, Guys, you can really help us out by rating and reviewing these podcasts um, wherever you listen, whether it's iTunes or, or any other website. Um, they, they help us grow. They help other listeners like you. If you found us interesting, um, hopefully there's other people out there who also find us interesting that uh, you know, may want to may tune in. So thank you so much. I am Andrew Herman, and this was State of the Art.